So I got to, as an adult, tour around with my dad and we were frank, we had fun, we skied, we drank beers with customers, we, we had a great time. And we rolled into the parking lot of London Ski Club, which is now Bowler Mountain in London, Ontario. And I believe they boast 200 vertical feet. We pulled into the parking lot and we looked up to the top of the mountain and I went, oh. And my dad said to me, he goes, don't you even. He said, the very first lesson is that you don't need vertical to make money. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, getting the story on all the stuff that's essential to running a ski resort that we never even think about. Before we get to that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. If you're just listening to this podcast on iTunes or some other podcasting service, really, I appreciate it, but frankly, you are missing a lot. The email newsletter is the heart of the storm with lots of context around the podcast and a whole bunch of other industry ski news and analysis all year long. That publishes a couple of times per week, but for daily updates, you can follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. All right, big news from my sponsor. You have been listening to me speak about Mountain Gazette for more than a year now, and you know the drill. It's beautiful, large, and it features stunning photography and simply the best long-form writing in the business. But here's the thing. Mountain Gazette wants to say thank you to you, the loyal subscriber. From now until New Year's, Mountain Gazette is giving away free swag to subscribers. That's right. If you are subscribed to the magazine, you are all set. They are giving away hoodies, posters, a ski tar, a cord of wood, and two indie passes because without you, there is no Mountain Gazette. Not subscribed? Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of The Storm. Mountain Gazette wishes all of their subscribers a very happy holiday and a happy new year. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 68, Leah Mirhead McDonald, President and CEO of Intermountain Inc. Anyone who follows The Storm knows that I am a huge trail map guy. I love the souvenir. I love the artistic interpretation of the mountain, and I love the way they can capture a ski area's attitude or essence in a picture. It is a phenomenal part of the ski experience, and my guest today leads a company that has put out some really stellar trail maps in recent years. But Intermountain, a British Columbia-based company, does much more than design trail maps. They make all the stuff that accessorizes a ski area and that most of us never even think about. I am talking about things like ski racks, trail signs, lift mazes, and safety padding. It is a pretty interesting world and a necessary backdrop to the lift-served skiing experience that most of us really love. Let's go. My guest today is president and CEO of Intermountain Enterprises. Intermountain is a premier supplier of signs, specialty products, and event supplies for the outdoor recreation industry. The company's products include all sorts of on-mountain signage, padding and aluminum, lift accessories, and hand-painted mountain maps, including recent trail maps for Berkshire East and Bosquet ski areas in Massachusetts. 
The company is based in British Columbia and was founded in 1987 by the Moirehead family. Leah Moirehead McDonald is my guest. Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for having me. And did I get Leah right or is it Leah? It's Leah and it's Muirhead, but okay. well, I just said anything. Leah Muirhead. I apologize. I usually get that straight in advance. So I'm, I'm off to a great start today. So um, w- with that, let's get right into the history of Intermountain. Who founded the company and what was its original product? Uh, so our company was started in 1987 by Debbie and Don Muirhead. Um, those are actually my folks. And it started as a non-destructive testing company. And they tested uh, wire ropes, cables, um, and all of the the, the different pieces on the chairlifts um, for safety. And then in 1991, they opened the sign and specialty product division of the company and eventually they became two separate entities. That's so interesting, non-destructive testing. So tell us about that. What does that entail exactly? So the regulations for non-destructive testing are quite different in Canada than they are in the States. So um, in the US, the resorts handle a lot of their own um, safety testing, whereas in Canada, it has to be done by, by an independent body. So uh, there's Intermountain Testing Limited is still operated, and um, they have a number of technicians that travel around Canada, and they do everything from full lift audits to wire rope testing. Um, they do grips and hangers and all sorts of inspection pieces. They also do mines, cranes, fire trucks, all sorts of pieces. Talk about the process of that a little bit, because I'm imagining... You know, when you see the the General Motors cars in the lab and they're like smashing them into the walls to see what they'll take. That's what's in my head. But what is the process like of doing this non-destructive testing? So you are thinking about destructive testing, non-destructive <laughs> okay. testing. No ropes were harmed in the process of testing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to speak on the, the nuances of, of non-destructive testing. That's a, a separate business from mine. Um, but growing up around it and uh, my my brother and father um, own and run the company. It, uh, I, I have a bit of a, a vision. So basically uh, at the end of the maintenance period, when they take the chairs off the line, um, there's a very expensive little machine called a wire rope tester. And that um, affixes around the, the wire rope cable and they run the, the, um, they run the line. And um, through ultrasonics, um, they actually look inside of that cable, all of the little strands that make up the wire rope and they're looking for broken wires. So that's one example of how those pieces are done. They also do things um, like dye penetrant and, um, and ultrasonics and magnetic particle where they'll, they'll put a, a, a specialty powder on, put a magnet beside it. And if there's a crack in the area, the magnetic particles line up in such a way that you can see it. So it's, it's very specialized. Uh, their technicians have a number of certifications and, and tons of years of field experience. That is so interesting. And it makes me feel so much better about riding a chairlift. Not that I felt uneasy about it before, but I'll tell you something I was wondering about recently. So there's a, there's a website called Lift Blog, and it's a terrific site. They inventory, he's inventoried uh, most of the chairlifts in the United States and Canada. And every Friday, he does a newsletter. And one of the items in his newsletter a Friday or two ago was one of the lifts on the backside of Vale, or maybe it was Game Creek. It, it actually was uh, the, the haul rope was shot by a hunter's bullet. And if you look at this haul rope, it's obviously very long. And the bullet, without this close-up view, 
you you would never tell. So, so I was like, how did they figure that out? But I think you just answered my question with all this machinery that you just described. Exactly, exactly. And I know you said they they do it. Them, are you saying all resorts in the United States do it themselves, or or are you not as familiar with the U.S. market? You know, again, it's um, I. I they are familiar. It's not the business. Our businesses are, are separate now. And so it's not something that I have uh, uh, in-depth knowledge on. I'm sure Donna Ross would love to speak with you about the nuances of testing. Um, but uh, I, what I understand is that more of it is done in-house. Um, but there are still, there's a, a few different NDT companies down there that do a great job as well. But I'm not sure when they step in versus what the resorts do. I just know the regulations are quite different than in Canada. Okay. Yeah. I'd imagine it's state to state down here, which is how most things are. And I'd imagine states like Vermont, for example, are probably much more stringent than states like uh, Colorado, as far as who does those, just, just knowing what I do about the state politics. Um, so I want to go back to when your family branched off into the sign business. So you said they started as a non-destructive testing and they got into science. What, what made them see the opportunity to create a signs business for ski resorts? Yeah, it's a bit of a leap from non-destructive testing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> um, a little bit. So it was in, in 1991, and what happened was was that in Canada, um, so the Z98 code, um, which is uh, the equivalent of the ANSI code in the States, they were changing and they were introducing um, code signs with pictograms. And so at that point, all of the mountains had to update their signage. And so a number of the non-destructive testing customers were speaking with, uh, with Don and, and saying, you know, oh man, I wish there was just one place where we could buy this and the people knew what the regulations were and we were good to go. And uh, my dad kind of scratched his head and my mom is actually, a, she's uh, very art inclined and, and was an artist and, and I believe she was in a fine arts program at the time and, and very involved in the art community. And uh, I believe the uh, the folklore in our family was that I think she got a sign making machine for Mother's Day that year, and uh, oh. and away they went. So they, <laughs> they did all the artwork and and started opening it. And the the intention was to be instead of every single person having a local sign shop have to do all the R and D to get you know the the most robust materials because you can imagine it's quite different what you need at the top of the ski hill than you know around town. Um, so, and then have the artwork done by one place. So they weren't each paying for the artwork setup fees. Um, artwork was a lot different at the time, but the same principles still apply to sign making today is that you've got one spot that knows what they're doing, what the industry, um, norms and standards are, and, and it's all there so that you can just purchase it out of a, out of a catalog. So when you talk about that national code, is it still the same as it was in 1991 or has it evolved since then? It's evolved since then. Um, Don has always sat on, on the code committee and, and there's been, just like with the, the B77.1 code, there's been changes to signage over the years, um, but of course major changes to all of the operating pieces since 1991 that, that govern the ski resorts. So when you say there's a common code, are, are you talking about like the, the color that the trail name has to be and the diamond or the blue square or the green circle next to it? Or, or, or are you talking about something else? No, I'm talking about the lift sign. So as you get on the, on the chair, oh. um, there's, a, there's a code in, in America as well as one in, in Canada. And it dictates, you know, how high your ramp has to be and how you sign that. It tells you, you know, if you have questions using this lift, um, please ask your attendant. It tells you when to lower your bar, when to raise your bar. Um, those, those, both of those codes cannot be altered. The resort can't put their logo on them. It can't, can't change them to, you know, the color green. They can't do any of those pieces. It's, 
um, you know, this is how far to unload, please prepare. Um, the, both of the codes um, include conveyors and aerial tramways as well as chairlifts. So it was the actual lift specific signage that originally had changed. Um, and that was when, when, when they got involved and started the sign company. And then from there, it was just um, the product line evolved just as people needed things. That's so interesting. So when COVID hit last year, was there a whole slew of new signs? Because I know in the States, I didn't ski in Canada last year, but every ski resort suddenly had the sort of like mask required sign up there and uh, uh, ride with who you came with or whatever. I forgot the, they had a, a jaunty little slogan, but did you have a whole bunch of COVID specific signs that you had to start turning out? Absolutely. Um we ended up when when all of the resorts started shutting in in march of 2020 initially one of the first things we did after we moved as much of our team remote as we could was to start work we went okay as soon as these guys open they're going to need some of this stuff so we actually created a four-page brochure just specifically on floor decals and and physical distancing or it was uh it was social distancing then was was most of the verbiage and um that has definitely you know evolved as this uh as the this pandemic situation has evolved. We went to, you know, masks mandatory in a lot of areas. Now we're back making a lot of recommended signs. Um, so yes, COVID signage definitely, definitely kept us busy. Um, NSAA ended up releasing um, uh, a joint set of sort of uh, recommendations for signage. Uh, it was great because I always say it doesn't cost anything more to be consistent. And that kept reports yep. right across North America quite aligned in their messaging, which was fantastic. You know, don't be the reason we lose our season. Uh, they did a fantastic job of, of presenting that. And was that for your U.S. customers or, or do Canadian ski areas go by the same standards as the NSAA puts out? So those weren't standards. They weren't mandatory. It was more of a, a suggestion and, and both um, resorts in Canada and the U.S. adopted it and changed it. Um, so within Canada, they had changed some of the messaging um, to be a little bit more like in our brochure. You can see we have some COVID signs that are are the NSAA ones and then some Canadian specific, um, there's a line of French, French signs as well for those. Um, but the consistency is, is there, the messaging is, is, is quite similar. If anything, the um, regulations and requirements by region were what changed. This is all just so fascinating to me, Leah, is, is all these things that skiers just don't think about. They're just part of the resort. And, and this is what your whole business is built around. And it's so interesting. And I want to come back to your products in a minute. First, though, I just want to get a little more insight onto your story. So I'd imagine you grew up with this. I don't know how old you are, but at some point you must have joined the family business. What was your first job there? And what made you decide that this is where you wanted to be? I know not everyone wants to necessarily work with their family, but what made you decide to make that choice? Well, it was interesting. I grew up working in the ski industry. I worked as a lifty and a parking lot attendant and in ticket sales and uh, guest services and marketing and, and all of the different departments at ski resorts directly growing up. Um, I went away to university and I worked at um, I worked at, uh, at a resort while I was in university as well as, as the one that I worked at growing up. And then which resorts, Leah? So I worked at Big White um, growing up, and then I worked at Grouse Mountain um, when I was in university for a period of time. Terrific. Uh, great, great resorts, both of them. And during that time, I did a degree in economics with a minor in communications, and my intention was to go into finance. And so I graduated and I worked in finance for a, a short period of time. And at that point, I, I was just really 
I was bored. Um, I kind of I kind of realized that I was a little bit more fun than finance, and uh, and I, I had a really difficult time with the fact that I couldn't guarantee anything. I couldn't guarantee you an X return. I couldn't guarantee you that this would do this. And at that point, I realized that I really wanted to be in an industry where I had where I had a tangible product that I could guarantee it that I could um, I could stand behind what I was selling. And so at that point, I started to sort of you know, search for, for where my career was going to take me if it wasn't finance. And my my father kept coming to me saying, you should come and work for us. And it was kind of a funny conversation because I was, no, no, dad, I'm fine. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'll be great. Like I'm looking at all these cool industries and I'm doing all this stuff. And he's going, no, like you don't get it. You would get to ski around North America. No, no, dad, I'm fine. <laughs> and uh, so it took a lot of convincing and he finally put a job description in front of me where I went, oh, <laughs> So there was a lot of back and forth. So I joined the company, it's 17 years ago now. And uh, and I joined the company and my job was sales and marketing with the, uh, the I was tasked with expanding us into the US. We had one uh, US client, it was Stowe in Vermont. Now you can nice. imagine how many sign shops there are between BC and Vermont. Yep. And the reason that they bought from us was that no one could match our quality for our pricing. And we for years did all of their pieces. and. It, um, once I kind of wrapped my head around the fact that, oh, wait a minute, going to work for my family was an opportunity and not, uh, <laughs> not that I was giving up on my career. <laughs> um, I moved back to Kelowna and, uh, and started with them. And the, the plan was, was that we were going to give it a year. And if it worked for a year, then I'd probably end up taking over the company in the very, very far future. So, so take us through, so 17 years ago, I think that takes us back to 2004. Yeah. So you come in 2004, obviously it's worked out, but just tell, take us through the story. How did your roles evolve and when did it become clear that you were indeed going to take over the family business at one point? I think about three days after I got there, I knew, but <laughs> I had to get, we've got a lot of long-term staff. Some of our, we still have staff that, that predate me. And, uh, you know, it was, it was getting everyone's buy-in and, 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 you know, I mean, just cause I grew up in the company in the ski industry, um, doesn't mean that I necessarily, you know, I still had a lot of learning to do. So my first job was sales and marketing. I was our outside sales rep and my family had Western Canada, um, quite covered. So initially I did a lot in Ontario and, uh, mostly in the States, I would spend, gosh, an awful lot of time with a trade show booth and a rental car and a pair of skis and, and walking around knocking on doors saying, hi, I'm Leo with Intermountain. And most of them had never heard of Intermountain. So my initial job was a lot of cold calling um, and, uh, and just introducing us in, into a new market. And then at the same time, we had really only done word of mouth marketing. Um, we didn't have a website. The, the big joke was that uh, my dad thought the internet was a fad and we didn't need one. <laughs> So we had a landing page with our contact info on it. And uh, so I created us our first website, which at the time was quite cutting edge. It had a database we could update. And uh, the irony is, is that we, we keep modifying it, but it's the same the same site that we've had since 2005, I think. Up, <laughs> up. And we actually are just, uh, Jordan and my marketing department and I are just putting the finishing touches and we'll have a new uh, e-commerce site launching in February, which is kind of amazing. Fun. But, uh, but at the time it was me, I wrote the text, I took the photos, I knocked on the doors and, you know, I, I did all of those pieces. I wrote up the orders and we went from there. And at the time we were very sort of segregated into our sign department and our products department. So I actually started off in our products department and did much more of those sales and, 
and um, and then sourced all of the new products. You know, I was a bit of a jack of all trades as I learned. And then from there, I mean, we now have a sales team. We have a marketing team. Uh, my role grew from sales and marketing rep to sales and marketing manager to general manager um, to CEO. And now I'm, I'm president and CEO. And my husband and I actually purchased the company outright from my family um, about two months ago. Well, congratulations on that. I'm sure that's an exciting moment. And I'm sure your parents are thrilled to keep the the company in the family. I have to go off the board a bit here. And, and I have to ask because you, I, I'm, I'm presuming you grew up skiing, right? Absolutely. So you, you grew up skiing in BC, which is phenomenal by all accounts. And, and then you go to Ontario. And I grew up in the Midwest of the United States. So it was right across the, the river or across the lakes from Ontario. So I know those are kind of smaller hills, a little bit icy, you don't have the snow conditions. How did you stay humble going to these places and not saying, well, this is a nice little spot you got there, but I'm used to, you know, 400 inches and 3000 vertical feet. So my father is an amazing man. And, you know, there's not very many grown-ups that get to go on road trips with their dad, especially if their dad's a pretty cool guy. So I was very blessed. I got to, as an adult, tour around with my dad, and there was no there was no beating around the bush. We were frank. We had fun. We skied. We drank beers with customers. We, we had a great time. And we rolled into the parking lot of London Ski Club, which is now Bowler Mountain in London, Ontario. And I believe they boast 200 vertical feet. We pulled into the parking lot and we looked up to the top of the mountain and I went, oh. <laughs> and my dad said to me, he goes, don't you even. He said, the very first lesson is that you don't need vertical to make money. Mm-hmm. And if you can remember that and realize that all these guys grew up racing and they're going to kick your butt down the mountain. And if you remember <laughs> those two things, you'll do well out here. And, uh, and I often, you know, as I'm training new sales reps and new members of our team, I'll often, you know, talk about Blue Mountain in Ontario and, and they boast the largest horizontal in Ontario. And so that is amazing. It's no different than, you know, I've, I've skied at resorts all through Ontario, through Quebec, um, down into, into your area. I've skied all through, through the Eastern U.S. as well. And, you know, it's, uh, you, you don't mess, you don't need vertical to have a good day. And as long as it's blue, I'll ski with you. As long as it's not blue, I will ski with you at least. <laughs> it, it's such an interesting perspective to have. I, I feel like uh, a lot of folks who are already West would never consider coming East. But, but I feel like there's a lot of cultural elements to skiing that go beyond the sheer size of the hill or the current snow conditions or anything else. And especially when you get into New England, there's just so much history and, and the Midwest has so much passion for, for what they pack onto a hill will be dismissed anywhere else. I, I love your perspective of just looking at it as, as a whole piece and not just the 200 vertical feet. You know, we as a company very much believe in supporting the industry. Um, if I get a phone call from whether it's the National Ski Resorts Association, NSAA, or whether it's the Canadian or the Ontario or any of the resort associations and they need something, we will donate all the artwork in the world and the time and the help. It's, we have such a passion for the ski industry and we believe that we're a, a critical industry partner in, in keeping people safe and, and helping the industry grow and expand. And it's not about, there's, there's no ego in it. Some of the funnest days I've ever had are on a little mom and pop hill um, with good snow. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not about that. It's about expanding the sport that we all love. And, you know, I always say to the smaller guys, 
you know, they're, they're the ones who create the destination trips for the bigger ones. There's, there's no, in my view, there's no, uh, there's no hierarchy in skiing. There's no, there's no ego. Check it at the door. Let's go for some runs. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Leah. And, and I've made this point often on the podcast. If, if anybody's listening to this and they run a mountain of any size anywhere in the world, I want to talk to you because yes, I've had people from the people who run Jackson Hole and Steamboat and Aspen on the podcast, but I'm just as interested in Lonesome Pine, Maine and Whaleback, New Hampshire. And actually I've never had a, a Canadian ski resort on the podcast. That's mostly what I talk to is folks who run ski resorts. So if anyone from Canada is listening and wants to be my first Canadian ski resort, uh, please reach out to me. <laughs> you tell me who you want. I'll put you in touch with anyone. There's some great team in Canada. Amazing. Amazing. Maybe we should start with Big White. I, I do like the big ones too. Um, so I want to get back to your business for a moment. I, I think it's, I, I really love talking to folks who are carrying on this legacy of running a family business. And, and I've, I've talked to a few ski resort families that are on multi-generational ownership and, and it's always so interesting, the pride they take in it. Just talk about that element of it for, for a minute here, Leah. What does it mean to you to take on your family business, to sting that your parents built, and and what sense of pride and duty comes with that to be a good caretaker and be a good steward of this and help the business continue to grow and evolve into the future? Wow, we could have an entire conversation just on that. Um, my parents are are amazing people, and my parents are very well respected in the in the ski industry. Um, for us, it's about the relationships with our customers. It's not about, you know, I'm going to sell you a rake today. Uh, it's not about that. It's about being an industry partner and being accepted in the industry and 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 all of us growing as a result of, of, of everything that we're all doing. And my parents very much in, instilled in me that you support the industry. These, these, this, this is your family. These are your relationships. This is, this is huge. And so the biggest thing moving forward is... Um, is is continuing that legacy of you know helping the industry and caring for the industry and 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 helping everyone you know many hands make light work right as a supplier partner we can do different things and we are um i'm really passionate about about uh young people in the industry i mean i had a family who had a business in the ski industry and it did not occur to me that i could have a career in the ski industry I just didn't. It was seasonal. I was going to do great things and do all of these, you know, big things. And I didn't have time for a seasonal job. I was going to university and we host the, um, the, uh, through Selkirk in Nelson, British Columbia, they have a scary management program. Uh, there's some similar ones in the U S as well. And we have them come and they do a tour every year and they learn about us. And, and the big thing that I always try and really impress on them is that, you know, don't forget about your, your industry partners. There's some amazing careers with the people who who serve the industry and they're just as critical partners as the ski hills. So it's that, you know, and that you can have an amazing, fulfilling career in the ski industry, because even though I was raised in it, it, it truly did not occur to me. It was never part of the plan that I would work in my parents' business or take it over. And then the other one is is women in the industry. And when I first started 17 years ago, you know, I'd run into another woman in the washroom and we'd, we'd have a little giggle, you know, at an event this large, there's no lineup here. Uh, yeah. You know, there was there were very, very few of us, especially young women um, in the industry. And so I, I always try and, and single out a few of, of the new ladies, especially, but the new people in the industry and, and you know, just 
I'm here if, if they need anything because it's it's an interesting journey. And and now what's really fun is that when you go into the trade shows, there's there's a lineup in the ladies' bathroom. And a lot of these um, industries have they have women's groups or they have you know they have support and encouragement for for all genders in in the ski industry, which is is really fun for me. So you know I have a, I have a few um, passions about continuing our 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 family's business and our legacy, but but both of those involve encouraging people to join the ski industry as a career and and empowering women in in the ski industry. My mom was one of the first female board of directors with the the Canada West ski industry. Oh, amazing! You know that's that's pretty cool. So it sounds like you're really poised to evolve the company into the future and you have a, a very strong vision for it. I, I have to ask, what are your parents doing now? Are they enjoying retirement? Are they skiing all, all winter? What's their plan? You know, it's fun. My dad hasn't had a whole ton of time to ski in the last number of years and he skied three times last week and man, did it ever make oh. me happy. Um, no, so they still have the uh, Intermountain Testing Company and and that's going through its own succession uh, process and and it will evolve as it evolves, but uh, no, they both still still work there. Neither of them were were day to day in our company. I had run operations for years. Uh, my mom very much active as our CFO, and um, Don, my father, has always uh, uh, coveted the title of creator of stupid ideas. So <laughs> he uh, helped with product development or or different things. Um, but no, they still have another very large business to run and. Uh, and they're doing that, and and my mom is uh, is is being grandma care. She wants to hang out with my kids and and my siblings' kids a little bit more. And they have a place on the lake they hang out at. And yeah, they're they're living the dream. Amazing. Sounds like a terrific life. All right, let's go back to your products here. Just give us a high level overview of Intermountain's product lines. For sure. So essentially, we make everything you need to run a ski hill outside that isn't heavy equipment. So we do everything from your on-mountain signs to your ski racks and maze gates, padding, event branding, fence drill bits, and all the little stuff in between. We have a full line of kids' toys, um, all sorts of fun stuff. So we manufacture and supply only the highest quality. Um, and we have a full-service sign shop, industrial sewing, and aluminum fabrication. And then we um, buy and resell in bulk and, and are constantly looking for, for quality products that would help that would help our customers, the ski resorts. So to what extent do you have to tell your customers what they need? Like, for example, let's say Doppelmayr builds a new lift at a ski area in Canada. And do you do they come to you and say, hey, what signs do we need, like legally for compliance reasons? Or do you have a partnership with, with Doppelmayr or whoever that when they put in the lift, you sign it? Or how does that whole process work where people make sure that they have all the things they need at their ski resort on the lifts? So, you know, it, it really depends. In that particular example, General Doppelmayr puts the, the chair in and it comes with, you know, numbers on the towers and it comes with pads on the seats, um, but it doesn't come with any of the code signage and it doesn't come with the tower pads. So generally it would be the resort ordering those. Um, we certainly do some work with lift manufacturers um but you know sometimes the stuff's made elsewhere um for example if the chair comes in from overseas then it comes with those those seat pads um so how that would work is they put the chair in and then we have generally names on the sides of the lifts that we do we do their code signs their pads depends if it's a new lift or if they're replacing the lift if they're replacing the lift they may reuse those tower pads or get new ones for that and repurpose those elsewhere 
Um, so it, it really, a lot of it is, um, is through the resort itself. Um, we do a lot of replacement of seat pads when, you know, when they start to wear out, um, those sorts of things. And give us a sense of your range here. Are you mostly Canada? Have you branched out in the United States? Are, are you overseas? What, what's your territory? I would say we're North American wide. We, we strongly believe in uh, North American made and manufactured. So wherever humanly possible, um, we make the goods ourselves or we source ones that are made in North America. There's very few exceptions. Uh, bamboo is only grown in China. You know, the best yeah. bits come from Italy. There's a few exceptions, but generally all of our goods come from North America and then supply the more North American economy. Um, so I would say we're about a third of our businesses in the U.S. and about two thirds of our business is Canada. So still very heavy Canadian, but we do an awful lot of work and spend an awful lot of time in, in the States. And are you mostly focused on ski areas or, or do you service other kinds of facilities as well? Well, skiing is our love, and we really just like to talk about snow all day. Um, but that definitely branches into other outdoor recreation facilities. So a lot of like Nordic and snowshoe trails and, and those sorts of things. Um, we also do, we consider ourselves outdoor recreation suppliers now. So with the um, evolution of uh, lift access uh, mountain biking, for example, um, we're very involved with all of the different associations and, and safety committees and stuff to standardize the signage for lift access mountain biking. And then as a result, we ended up doing cross country mountain bike trails. We do a lot of mountain biking and hiking. Um, we do zip lines, we do all sorts of outdoor recreation. And then that's led into some, you know, municipal wayfinding. Um, we do some mines, some construction and a little bit of local stuff. But I would say that our business is still mostly ski areas and their related businesses. And how many ski areas would you say are your customers? Like where, how many ski areas would we find Intermountain products at right now? Most of them. Um, it depends. Really? Well, because you can't, we have such a, uh, a diverse product line that we don't do everything for everyone. Some resorts only have our ski racks and that's all we've ever done for them. And they buy all of our ski racks. Um, some resorts you can show up and it looks like an Intermountain postcard. Um, <laughs> so you, you know, because our range is so diverse, you know, we may be the only ones that supply a certain piece or, um, you know, but I would say that we've probably worked with um, every resort in Canada for sure. And, and a large percentage of, of the resorts in the U.S. But it's not that all of our product is everywhere. It's that we've done some with most. Is there a tell or a distinct marking on Intermountain products that would identify them as we're skiing along the mountain? Yeah, they still look good in 10 years. <laughs> uh, no, we, we do have a sticker uh, with our logo on it, on the back of all of our signs. It's sewn into our tower pads um, on our tubes. So we definitely have, have an indicator with a logo on it. I actually was at a ski resort the other day, and, last season, and I took a photo of it. And then I looked around to the back and I thought, oh, geez, that's getting old. And I looked and it was our original logo from, I think it was like 93. And, oh, wow. and the sign was still in use. So it, uh, so I, I actually took a picture of the the logo on the back of the sign to show our team because uh, you know I mean here's the sign still looking pretty good. Now they don't all last that long, but that was uh, <laughs> that was a great example of longevity. Uh, Leah, I, I'm going to ask you to send me that picture after this interview because I ski around quite a bit and I try to hit a lot of different ski areas throughout the year. And this is the kind of stuff I always look for. So I'm going to if I if I know what your original logo is, I'm going to try to find more and send them to you. <laughs> All right, perfect. perfect. I'll send you the new one and the old one. Uh, but yeah, no, we've got a we've got a sticker on every maze gate and ski rack and stuff that we 
that we make. So if you if you look around, you'll find uh, you kind of go, wow, oh, okay. <laughs> so you start seeing okay. more of them. So for, for anyone listening to this podcast, the article that accompanies the podcast at stormskiing.com will have both of those logos on so you can help us hunt them down across the continent. So so Leah, let's let's go back to the company's evolution. You, you started as with non-destructive testing in the 80s uh, and evolved, as you said, into chairlift signage. But take us through the evolution after that. How did the company grow into different product lines? A lot of it was, you know, one of our customers, a lot of it was, you know, a, a drawing on a bar napkin and then we went and figured out how to make it. A lot of it was our customers saying, you know, what you guys should do or, hey, we get this great stuff from this place, but, you know, we don't order enough of it to get good pricing. You guys should sell that so we get better. So a lot of it was was driven by our customers. Um, A lot of it was um, uh, us sourcing and finding things and then doing a lot of feedback. We do a lot of a lot of R&D and a lot of feedback from our customers and um, and kind of figuring it out that way, you know, we made ski racks. So, okay, so we got into aluminum, we made the gates and the lineups, and then we made ski racks. And then, you know, there was a time and a place for our 10 foot standard ski rack. It's a beautiful ski rack, but it doesn't necessarily fit all budgets. So we really scratched our heads and we came up with an eight foot, um, we call it our Econo ski rack. It's a, it's a lightweight, um, it breaks down better for shipping. So it's cheaper to get places. It's still a beautiful rack and a great rack. Um, but what was out there was steel. And so people needed something that was cost effective and lightweight. And so we, you know, kind of got the head scratching and made a few of them and sent them out and people tried them and went, oh yeah, that's great. Or we'd make tweaks to them and, and there we would go. So most of our, our product line grew from, from our customers' recommendations and, and needs. And as you look back on your history, how much of your products or in your new lines were based on improving existing products like the ski rack, which I'd imagine has been around for decades. And how much of it has been creating new products to solve a new problem? Oh, a lot of both. You know, I think of, um, I was actually skiing with one of the, uh, the, the lift ops manager at, at Whistler Blackcomb. Oh gosh, I don't know, 10 years ago. And, uh, we were skiing together and, and one of her lifties came up to her and said, uh, we have another broken rake. And she kind of swore a little and I looked at it and I said, so where do these rakes break? <laughs> What's happening here? And uh, we ended up creating a rake advisory committee. And I'm not okay. kidding. I had 10 resorts on this rake advisory committee and I wanted both train park and lift operations. And we had, you know, chats with each of them. What would your perfect rake entail? Well, most rakes break off at the head. So they wanted, you know, something that was very robust there. Um, so that they wouldn't keep losing them. They wanted interchangeable head, all of these different pieces. And so we went through about four revisions and I would make, I can't even tell you how many rakes I made and gave away and they tried them and, you know, they broke a couple until they stopped breaking them. We kept tweaking the design. And, you know, even today we came up with, you know, a slightly different version that someone was felt would, would help. And we made some prototypes and tweaked them until we got the design right. So, you know, those ones, um, as train parks uh, became more more popular and uh, the need for sh- proper shaping equipment uh, arose, our, our product line arose there a little bit as well. So, you know, is that fulfilling a new need or just tailoring a product to suit? You know, it's it's a little bit of everything, but it was very much based on the needs of, of our customers. Now, that's a really good case study in 
strong research and development, right? You, you get a lot of people together who know what they're talking about and know what their needs are. And then you respond to those. So let's just talk about your research and development team for a moment. So there, you know, the rake is a good example, but if you talk about that sign, that's, you know, 30 years old at this point from, from the early 1990s, and it's still up. There has to be a sense of pride in that, but that's not an easy thing to do, right? If you have to create something to last, and especially when you consider the environments that most ski resorts are in, right? They're either high altitude, very cold, lots of different precipitation, all kinds of things coming in. So just talk about your research and development team in general and how they continually work to make these products better. Signage has the potential to be a lot like fast fashion. You create a sign and it ends up in the landfill. And we try and be as environmentally conscious as possible as a company. And one of um, the big things is we use all aluminum. There's a lot of, of resorts and competitors that will use plastic signs and there's a place for those. And we have one that doesn't fade because I don't want them in the landfill. So we try and use aluminum wherever possible because when you're done with the sign, it can be recycled. Um, my products are never the cheapest on the market and I'm unapologetic about it. We build stuff to last. Now we always have budget friendly solutions, but I would rather use all of the highway grade materials. I would rather overbuild that sign so that it lasts on you. Because when you consider the cost of your patroller, putting it on their back and skiing it to your boundary and putting it up and maintaining it to have to have that sign fade out the, the risk management associated with a boundary sign fading and not being able to read it properly. Um, and then the cost of that patroller skiing it all the way out there, you know, having to take three chairlifts to get to where that sign is, that's not cost effective. If you buy a better sign and you put it out once, you're going to end up with less in the landfill. You're going to be able to recycle it when you're done. And it's going to be a more budget-friendly solution that you didn't have to rebuy it three times over the lifespan of, of what it could have been. So our R&D really focuses on longevity. Longevity, longevity. If anything ever doesn't last as long as it should, we just fix it. We replace it. Part of our training with our sales team is they need to know the weak spot on every single product. Where is this going to fail first? And then how can we make it better? Um, our, our vendors, we drive them nuts. A lot of the sign guys will be like, okay, well, this one's cheap. Nope, I don't know. UV and cold crack guys, come on. Well, it's for, no. Even our um, scrim banner, for example, that we use for events, it's a pretty basic printing thing, but there's different grades of it. So even though every sign shop in the world uses a 13 ounce banner, we have done extensive testing and I can't even tell you how many spec sheets I've read on, you know, tear strength and warp and weft and, and mm -hmm. all of these different pieces to make sure that we have the best 13 ounce banner because yes, maybe it's just for an event, but for goodness sakes, let's make it through the event. <laughs> so yeah. there's a lot of our idea. We, um, I have a lot of, of women that work with us and, and we have a joke that it has to, it has to go through the high heel test. So whatever we print, whatever we make, it goes in the freezer and then we scratch the living heck out of it, normally with scissors and whatever's closest, mm -hmm. but often it's high heel. And so we'll beat something up and we'll freeze thought and then put the blow dryer on it, put it back in the freezer. Um, we do a lot of testing on mountains as well. And we've got some great uh, north and south facing windows. We'll put things in. Um, so our R&D test is, is huge. And, and normally we'll work with resorts that that are willing to on a certain product and we'll put something out and see how it lasts compared to, you know, something else. And, and we'll, we'll really evolve and grow. Um, there's a new vinyl that we're trying out um, that we'll probably switch over to in the next year. So I want to see how, 
how it behaves in a lot of freeze-thaw conditions. And, you know, only when we're sure it's the best will we, will we introduce it. it the, the skill sets you've just described are so specialized and, and so impressive to me. Has your research and development team been in place for a long time? How, how do you find these folks who are able to, to create these products that can withstand these environments? <laughs> you know, it's, um, we're a small company. We have 20 employees. So our research and development team is also our sales team. It's me. Okay. It's, it's our purchasing uh, crew. It's, uh, you know, there's the first thing that we do is we teach what questions to ask and what can go wrong. And once you sort of learn those pieces, then, um, then it gets very involved. My um, director of sales and, and operations, Carrie, has been with us for, for 11 years. And, and she, you know, in the beginning, she wasn't doing R&D. And now, oof, nothing goes out of the office without Carrie testing it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, it's very much a team effort. And, and now a lot of our vendors know. Um, one of our, our sign-making vendors came to us the other day. You've got to see this. It's indestructible. All right. <laughs> So, you know, and even our material for our tower pads and stuff, um, there's this new product. It was developed out of this plant in Georgia and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You got to see it. So, so people know our values and, and they come to us with that um, as well as, you know, the team really just being aware and, and the best way that we get feedback is when something fails. I mean, as much as we mm-hmm. try to create a product that's going to, you know, outlast everything, they don't always. And so by letting us know, we'll fix it and we'll try it with something different. We just keep fixing it until it's in, until it works. So you're putting out a ton of different products. You're super focused on quality. What are the top sellers? What are your most popular products? Oh man, it, you know, it's different by region, for example. Um, it's different by, by area. We do, we have such a diverse product line. Um, risk management signs is huge, trail signs. Um, we do trail signs right across North America for, you know, the green, blue, blacks for guiding the runs, um, you know, lift signs. Those are all huge for us. Padding is huge. Padding tends to be a little bit more regional focused. Um, we do kids toys right across North America. Kids toys are huge for us. And then our aluminum products, um, ski racks, maze gates, um, all of those sorts of things. But, you know, you'd be shocked at how many sticks of bamboo in a year we sell. Like sometimes it, <laughs> we always have a, a, you know, this happens to be the year of the foam kids block. Sometimes it's the year of the garbage can, like some years it, it ebbs and flows. So it's hard to say what our most popular products are because it's always evolving. Um, there's a huge appetite for digital signage at the moment. That's, that's something that we're definitely seeing an increase in, in inquiries on as, as the world is moving digital. So What's our most popular product? Um, all of them. Have you ever found a product that you tried to make and you just couldn't find a way to make it work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, there's lots of them. Like often we'll be approached at, you know, a show and somebody wants us to demo this. We tried a, a cool ski school option and I sent it out to 10 different ski um, ski school uh pros and and some level fours and and had them test this particular device and they all went absolutely not and that was where that conversation ended but um you know i the one that probably that i think of that was the most time and energy was we had um a number of customers wanting an aluminum toboggan and so we created the interboggan 1040 was our uh, our name for it 
And nice. oh my goodness, it was actually a great toboggan. It's still in use at one of the ski areas, but we did about oh, cool. three or four versions of it. And then we eventually realized that it was a lot like we used to make patrol vests as well. Mm -hmm. It was a lot like a patrol vest. Every patroller wanted a different feature. Mm. And every patroller wanted this customization. So then we'd make it and the next guy would hate it. And he'd want it. Okay. To and so with something like that, you need to have sort of a standard design and a couple of, of um, add-ons or whatever. And right. I've worked in a lot of different um, spots on ski hills, but never as a patroller. Now, Don had worked as a patroller, but, you know, 30 years prior. And uh, so we made a number of prototypes. We skied them around. Um, that was new for me. I hadn't skied with a toboggan before. And I really like to be an expert on anything that we sell. And that one just, it just, we never... I don't know that we got it quite right, but we could never quite determine what was a preference and what was a necessity. And by the time we put it all together and we started costing it, and I mean, it just couldn't even come close to competing with the fiberglass models. And I, we eventually just went, you know, something we have put hundreds of hours into this, thousands of hours into this. We've shipped aluminum toboggans all over the place and skied them around. And you know something? I don't think we're going to be experts in aluminum toboggans. So I think we're going to drop it. That's really interesting, Leah. So you're not making toboggans. Intermountain isn't making them, but someone still is. So so if you can help us scope this out, what does the mountain accessory industry, I don't know what to call it other than that, <laughs> how many peers do you have in North America? How, how big is this industry? Who are the big players? How much of that market is yours? Just lay this out for us. Well, it's really hard to tell. So there is, gosh, there is five U.S. suppliers that kind of consider themselves to be scariest suppliers and maybe three in Canada. But gotcha. then every single product line that we sell, there's competitors for. So, I mean, hmm. there's 20 sign shops in every town at a minimum. There is, you know, so there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different, lots of people use their local fab shop um, to make ski racks. Um, there isn't really a straight, a straight line on that because it is so, um, it's so dependent on all the different pieces. So, I mean, we do, we do a lot of fencing, for example, um, and so do all of our competitors, but none of us sell the exact same product mix. We all do different things. So I couldn't speculate what our market share is. Um, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a large enough game for us all to play in and enough competition to keep us all honest. And, and then, for example, there's people that just make patrol toboggans and that's all that they do. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty diverse diverse industry, but we're all industry partners. And, and, you know, the cooperation, even amongst the suppliers is huge in this industry, which is what part of what makes it so special. And to what extent do you find that ski areas are trying to simplify their vendor list? So in other words, if a ski area buys a ski rack from you, are they more likely to also buy tower padding and chairlift signs and trail signs? How, how often do you see that ski area? That's like, okay, you're our person for this. We want everything coming from you. Oh, often, often. Um, but like I said, we do so many diverse things that you can't do everything for everyone. And, and relationships are everything. We really pride ourselves on, on our qualities, I've said, but also on our, our service and, and knowing the ski industry. So sometimes people buy absolutely everything from us. And, you know, gosh, we appreciate that. And sometimes people have certain vendors for certain things. I've been, I've been told by a, a few ski resorts that 
anything that has to last more than a year, they get from us. Otherwise, they'll just grab it locally. So, Ooh, okay. you know, it, it, it depends. Every resort has a different philosophy. And for us, it's, it's, it's about the relationship. Um, we want to be your in-house sign shop. We want to help you produce um, consistent looking signs with the same verbiage that look good and last forever. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of our customers that actually have their own sign shops. So at, at one point, um, at one point, one of our customers actually shut down their sign shop because they could get it faster and cheaper from us than, than having their own. But some of them still have sign shops and, and we sell them the, the blanks for their trail signs and they put the letters on them. So, you know, some, some customers, um, it doesn't make sense to buy their event supplies from us for sh shipping times, for example, but any of the big pieces that they know they'll need in advance, they work with us on, or, I mean, our turnaround times are fast, but sometimes there's something to be said of, you know, sponsor banners the day of. So it really depends. Well, and we're happy to do as much or as little with you as, as, as you need and as makes sense to you. And, and generally once somebody starts working with us, they're, they're pretty impressed with, with the service and the turnaround times and our product. And, and, you know, the relationship generally grows from there. So obviously you have a lot of different things to choose from and, and all that stuff is made somewhere. So let's talk about your manufacturing process for a minute here. I know you said you like to source from North America, but uh, where, where are Intermountain products generally manufactured? So we're kind of the opposite of every manufacturing company in North America at the moment. We like to manufacture as much as we humanly can ourselves. Um, there's no shipping things out overseas wherever we can here. It's, um, it's, uh, we like to do just in time manufacturing wherever possible. And we like to do as much of it in house as, as possible. So we have, you know, industrial stone, we have sign making capabilities. Um, we've got offsite aluminum welding. We try and do as much of it ourselves, or we work with a partner where, you know, it's our designs and they build it for us and we're in the shop checking on quality and those sorts of things. Um, and then there's some products that we buy and resell as well. So how much, do you have a factory? We do. Yeah. Yeah. We're at a 7,500 square foot facility at this point, which is horrifically too small about five months of the year and okay. uh, too big the rest of the year. So we'll, we'll probably upgrade that at some point, but it's, it's pretty impressive. The volume of things that they can pump out of here. Um, today alone, there's six pallets, um, four by eight pallets of padding um, that are leaving the shop and about 12 pallets of aluminum um, plus, you know, a hundred sign packages. Well, probably not a hundred today, but a hundred this week that are leaving the shop. So it's, uh, they're, they're a pretty efficient team. We pre-make some of our items. Um, but a lot of them are made just in time to order so that we can customize things so that, you know, we have, we have handled, we're not carrying too much inventory. We can remain a small company. We can remain nimble in the manufacturing space. So this is interesting. So if, as you get into the factory, I'd imagine there's different machines or or centers where you make ski racks than where you make signs than where you make chair padding. How much? I, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this because if you're if you're making a car, it's like the same car coming down the line, you know, thousands in a row, and you put the same pieces in in every single one of them. But it sounds like you're making a lot of different things that are very different from each other. So uh, how, how is that laid out in the factory? How does this whole crazy operation work 
you know, it's uh, every time we have someone come through the shop, they kind of scratch their heads and think the same thing. So our, our office space is actually really interesting. We now cover three different units in the building that we're in, and we just kind of kept on taking over a unit at a time as we as we grew. Um, our welding is done off-site, but our, our main manufacturing facility, um, it's about 15 minutes away, but our industrial sewing and sign making is in two buildings. So I have four graphic designers that sit with all of our printers, for example. So they're in one space because it needs to be clean. Um, we make absolutely gorgeous sandblasted signs for parks and recreation and, and ski resorts, and that's a very messy job. So we have a woodworking shop um, where we do those and we screen print banners and all this stinky, smelly stuff. Um, and so it's, uh, we actually have a lot of our inventory there, but we've sewn these massive coverings that completely cover all the fence. You don't get wood particles in them. Um, if we have too much production in the shop one day, all of our table saws are on wheels so we can roll them outside. So they were literally removing snow so they could cut wood the other day. So we are okay. very, um, space is always a premium when we're busy, but we're, we're clever. We've got a storage container out back that, you know, holds all the foam because it's light and bulky. We've got, it's, it's actually pretty interesting. All of our, none of our spaces are single, single dedication spaces. It, it can ebb and flow because often we have more sewing than signs and then more signs than sewing. And next, you know, you need to get a fleet vehicle in to decollete. So our shop is very, um, they're very space conscious and although it's a large space um they're able to they're able to adapt and pivot to 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 moving things and then of course we encourage our customers if they're going to pick stuff up to do it immediately because we just don't have the space <laughs> so what's the most labor intensive thing to make aside from trail maps which we'll talk about in a minute oh for sure trail maps um some of our <laughs> Well, um, kids toys, a lot of our kids toys are very labor intensive and we try and brand them. Um, we sew all of our tubes right in house here, um, tubing products for tubing hills. And those are very labor intensive, but you now we've compared the quality with stuff you get overseas and there's just, there's just nothing like it. So uh, tubes are very time intensive. A lot of our sewing stuff is, and then grooming boards, making a proper grooming board, not hitting print on a machine, but actually actually layering the different um, really high quality vinyls. Um, you, can, you can make a grooming board by hitting print on a machine and laminating it, or you can do it properly so that it's changeable and you can grow with it. Um, and you actually are, are riveting in the track and, and to do a grooming board properly is, that is a very time consuming one. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's amazing the amount of things you've managed to juggle. I, I'm curious, Leah, because we've heard a lot about supply chain issues, and I, I think we're all being affected by this in one way or the other. But I'd imagine this is sort of at the core of your whole business. So talk about how the supply chain issues we've been hearing about have been affecting you, if they have at all. I don't think there's anyone that it hasn't affected. Um, where we are in British Columbia, we had massive forest fires this summer. And we've just had um, the roads wiped out due to massive flooding. So we've had um, Vancouver to Calgary, the link between there, which is right where we are, um, completely cut off for over a month here, uh, washed out all of our major highways. So that's the one that actually got us the most this year. Um, but supply chain, it's a problem for everyone and increasing prices are a problem for everyone. We've had to be very creative about the way that we purchased. We've had to purchase um, larger amounts and to keep our prices at the same. 
Um, we used to do two or three orders from vendors. We're doing one at the beginning of the season and saving on freight and, um, and leveraging quantities. Um, so we've done a lot of things like that to keep our prices as low as possible for our customers because we understand what a trying few years this has been um, in, this, in the ski resort industry. So there's been a lot of um, changing how we buy and you know, normally we would keep one roll of material on the shelf of, you know, XYZ material. Well, now we're keeping three. Um, so we're definitely having to do some of that. Um, but really the big thing is that, you know, our vendors are our partners and we believe in the same kind of, you know, fairness and, and, and fun and all of the values that we have in our company here, family and responsibility with them that we do with our own staff and our, and our customers. And so our vendors are amazing. They know we work in the ski industry. We know it's seasonal. We found a lot of them prioritizing our supplies over other people's because they understand that the ski resorts, you know, we've, we've worked with them for enough years. Um, we have huge loyalty with our vendors that, you know, they understand what we're going through. And so we found that we're prioritized and that they've bent over backwards to help us. And, you know, if there's a, a break in when the highways open, you know, they put us to the top so that we can get our stuffs out because they know that, you know, Lake Louise is opening on this date and they have to have their stuff. So it's been a lot about vendor relationships. Um, but really, there's nothing that we can't handle. We've had to, you know, pivot and order from different places and, and adjust what we do. But overall, we've we've had price increases. We've had supply chain issues, but they've been pretty minor compared to what I'm seeing out there in the market. Well, it sounds like those relationships are going to carry you through. All right, Leah, let's finish up by talking about trail maps. This is this is one of my favorite things about skiing is trail maps. So talk about how Intermountain got into the business of creating trail maps. Well, um, so Eric Oyen is our artist. And Eric has worked with us for over 25 years. I think he's 28 years now. Um, so he was one of our original employees and he is a fantastically talented man. Um, if you've seen photos of any of our um, sandblasted signs, he hand paints all of those. He is just so unbelievably talented. And so about 20 years ago, um, you know, that it's that whole piece of us supporting the industry. So it was actually Apex Mountain in Penticton. Um, they're about, you know, an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes away from us. I actually skied there this weekend. It was awesome. Nice, steep nice. mountain. Oh, you got that big storm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, wicked storm. Nice. And they, um, they had very little budget, and they had a really bad map. And so they had actually had a photo, and they were just going to put the runs on top of the photos. And we'll do that. Right, right. Um, but Deb, my mom, was, um, like I said, she was an artist, and she was always taking fine art classes to improve her skills. And, and she was our original graphic design artist. And... So she was in the process of a, of a, I think like landscape acrylic painting class and, and Eric's always been a painter and Apex was trying to get them to literally like draw runs onto a picture and they, just <laughs> didn't, they didn't have the budget to go with one right. of the larger guys and, you know, hire at that time, it was all, you know, planes and taking photos, aerial and all of these different things. And so they, I think, I think they charged them $500 and, oh, wow. and they, um, they did them a little tiny hand painted trail map and it grew with them for, you know, probably eight, 10 years, um, as they added more runs and, and those sorts of things. And, and my mom, I was actually talking to her about it before this and she said, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe the hours we put into that map. <laughs> Try and learn because there's, there's aspect ratios, there's shading, there's 
drawing snow or photoshopping snow wasn't photoshopping at the time that's still not but but getting the color of snow right is such a skill and you know figuring out the the topography and and where things go and how to draw one of the things that we still try and be so true to is trees everywhere are different so what do your trees look like how do we draw them how do we draw mm. every little branch on those trees how do you get you know, I don't want a watercolor blob of a tree there. I want to see the branches on it. I want to see, you know, where does your snow line lie? Are we painting this in January? Are we painting this in March? What does it look like? What is your, what does your background look like? So they painted this map and they repainted it. I think she said about six times and they really spent a, a lot of time. And then after that, they would, they took on more maps and and um, they spent, at the time, there wasn't websites where you would have every trail map in the world. Now, you know, if we're working on a project with someone, I say, go check out this, this link. Tell me which map right. is the best. Look at what your neighbors are doing. Find a tree you like, and we'll go from there. So there wasn't that. So I remember um, our testing technicians had to pick up a ski map at every ski resort that they were at so they could put them out on the table and, uh, you know, determine what they liked, what they didn't like. What did the backgrounds look like? Was, were they all sunny? Was it a sunny day at all of them? Right. So, you know, now it's much easier because a lot of the process is digital, but it's all still hand painted. So I'd imagine after that first map, Mm -hmm. you know, you you didn't make a lot of money from it, but then you have a map. And it seems like that first one is the hardest one to get because that doesn't seem like an easy market to get into. So once you had that map from Apex, how did you then kind of spin that into more trail maps for more mountains? You know, it's kind of like with everything that we do, it's, it's, um, you know, people always say to us, what, what's new? Hey, check out this. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Look at what we did. And so it's not a product that we, we, you know, we consistently do about two of them a year. We're not looking to do 20 in a year. We do a couple of them in a year and we try and make them really accurate. It's a really long process to do a, a hand painted map. And we pride ourselves on, on the accuracy and the detail that go into them. So once people saw Apex, I think they were inundated with about 12 requests. And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, okay, wow. on, let's do one more. Okay, let's tackle this type of tree. And it's it's sort of evolved from there. And, and we're still quite selective about who we take on. And we kind of have a niche that we're really good at now. Um, and yeah, it's uh, the work speaks for itself. I mean, there's some incredible trail map artists out there, but we tend to be accessible to the smaller resorts. What is that typical client look like? I know you just said smaller resorts, but, but what are the attributes they have that makes you think that they are right for Intermountain Trail Map? Um, well, the biggest thing is, is there's someone at the resort who's incredibly vested because as much as it's a lot of work for me, it's a lot of work for the resort as well to make sure that they've, you know, they've edited, they've gotten back to us in a timely manner. They've, you know, I would like photos of all of your trees, please, with and without snow. I mean, like these are the <laughs> they get from us. Um, so the biggest thing is is engaged stakeholders. I think would before anything, but really the maps that we specialize in are the guys who are big enough to have a map, um, but too small and and not really ready for you know hiring um, helicopters to go and take aerial photographs and 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 having some of the really big industry tycoons that that do some of these huge maps. We tend to be you know two three four chairlifts, a few carpets, a tubing zone, maybe a cross country facility, 
Um, you know, we tend to be sort of the smaller, a lot of the resorts, I mean, I think that, that both, um, you know, Berkshire East and, uh, the two most recent ones that we've done, Berkshire East and Bosquet, they're both, um, well-established mountains that have been around for a long time. They're in a period where they're really doing some capital investment and, um, really working on the aesthetics of it. And a trail map is, it just fits right in with that. So we tend to work with those resorts. And we try and really look at what the future long-term plan is. If you're going to add your next lift over here, well, then for goodness sakes, let's paint that area, even if we crop it out for this iteration of the map. Um, so we try and kind of work with them so they have something that they're going to grow with for, you know, the next 10 years of, of their mountain. So uh, Berkshire East is, a, is an interesting example. Anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows that I am a huge Berkshire East guy. And that that goes to a couple things. Number one, it's just a killer mountain. It's it's not huge, but you would never guess you're in Massachusetts. It it has just an awesome trail system, a great vibe, really cool glades, and that all goes back to the owner. And the owner John Schaefer is a good friend of the program. One of the, in my opinion, most interesting guys in skiing. He just he has that independent mentality. He he says things other people in the industry won't, and he approaches it in a whole different way. So everything you're saying jives with what I know about John. And and John's also advising on Biscay, which I'd imagine is how they came to you. So in, in that Biscay trail map and the Berkshire East ones, by the way, are just absolutely gorgeous. And I remember looking up the Berkshire East map a few years ago and I was like, wow, I just, I've never seen anything quite like that. You know, there's, there's sort of, uh, there's kind of the new house model. And then there's, there's a bunch of other crazy stuff you see, but, but there was a beauty to this one that I just, it was, it was very unique and I really, really liked it. And so those are the two mountains that I'm most familiar with. Those are the two that I've skied at on the list of, of mountains that you have. So, so let's, let's zero in on your most recent map, Biscay, which is, this is a mountain that I'm telling you, Leah, and, I, and I've told them this, so I'll say it to you. I skied there two years ago with my daughter and that place felt like it was falling apart. Like I was ready to put it on my list of number one ski area that is most endangered. Then they sold it to Milltown, just a great company. They're sort of a socially conscious investor. They're trying to fix up community assets and they just pumped money into this place. And it was definitely worthy of a new trail map that sort of put that paint of coat on it and said, this is a new ski resort. And when I saw yours, it just blew me away. I thought it was so cool. And I think me tweeting about it or, or putting it on Instagram is what inspired this conversation. So just talk about the Biscay trail map. How did they come to you and, and how did you approach creating it? Just take us through the process. So, and I have to agree with you on John Schaefer. He is my favorite type of, of client to work with in the ski industry, you know, independent thinking and passionate about what he does and thorough. John, John was an absolute blast to do the, the last trail map with. Um, yep. but, you know, both, both Bosquet and Berkshire East are, you know, I didn't know, um, you know, what you're describing of, of Bosquet, but what I saw was, you know, plans for new buildings and the new lodge that they've just put in. And, you know, I heard passion and, and pride in what they wanted to do. And, and so generally it's, uh, someone approaches us and says, Hey, can I get a trail map hand painted and how much? And you kind of go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. So I actually have this email that's like two pages now that I send someone. I'm like, Hey, here's what the process is. 
So first of all, you send me everything that you have. I want to see your old trail map. I want to see the last five trail maps that you had. I want to hear what you liked, what you didn't like. I want to know, do we have to do inset maps of glades? I want to know, are there Nordic facilities, tubing areas? Are we doing any blow-ups or, or partials of those? Like there's a whole bunch of questions that I have. And then I, we, we learned a long time ago that I give you a range for the painting and then I give you the range for the digitizing of it. And that range is 100% based on how organized you are. How much are you going to give me? How, you know, how, how many changes do we have to make? Um, and it's not that, you know, of course, we'll make any changes you need to, but half the time those can be avoided by people just being like super organized and, and knowing what they want from the outset. You know, I'm sorry, you have to talk to me about what tree style and amount of snow on your trees for a good 15 minutes before we get to <laughs> the trees. We have to have those right. conversations. We had a map once that, you know, they were adamant they wanted this tree and we showed them three progress shots. And then when it was done, nope, they wanted it snowier. And it was like, oh my goodness, we had to repaint every single tree on the mountain. Um, but you know, that happens from time to time. So the more prepared you are, the easier the process, but generally what the process is, is we gather all these things from you. You have an initial call with me we get a budget together. Then we have, um, once you decide that works within your budget and you sign off, then we have a meeting with, uh, with the artist and myself, um, possibly a graphic design artist if the overlay is particularly complicated. And then we, we utilize, um, some of the topography programs and a lot of Google Earth and aerial photographs that you may have, any of the stuff you may have, we find the orientation that you want us to paint from. And then we sketch it up and we mark it up and we we make sure that this is what you're wanting and what you want. And then you approve another sketch and then you often approve another sketch. And then once we have everything right, then we start to paint. And from there, you get progress shots along the way. And, you know, does this look right? Does that look right? Um, you know, sometimes people want the backgrounds to be, you know, these majestic snow-capped peaks and other times they want rolling hills. Did we get it right? Um, and so there's a lot of progress shots back and forth. And in those initial meetings, we talk about things like how full is your parking lot? Is it a busy day? Which way do your cars park? I want you to actually draw the angles where the cars park. Where do your buses park? We want to paint a bus. Um, you know, are there skaters on your skating rink? Like, what are all those little tiny details and nuances? What does your lodge look like? Um, you know, are there homes in the area? I want to see photos of what those look like. So we're painting them the right color. So there's a lot of like back and forth. And then when it gets perfect, the last thing we paint are the cars because they take forever. Um, wow. And once it's 100% complete and it's perfect and it's done, um, the customer signs off on it and then we digitize it. So we actually take it to like a blueprint um place and get it scanned into a high high resolution format and from there we have um graphic designers and they take it over they work with you on the legend any liability pieces that are in that map um it's cropped out like i said to you know exclude a future development area for now and so they get that so the digital overlay is perfect and then once you sign off on that then you own the digital files and we send those off to you as, and then we normally print some large scale maps for them as well Wow. Uh, ballpark, how long does that process take? Oh my goodness. We only start them in the spring. So if anyone's wanting a okay. trail map, now's the time to start talking about it. Um, because, <laughs> you know, it depends on how organized they are, how organized we are. In a perfect world, we're probably three months, um, a month for initial conversations, budget approvals, you know, deposit checks to be sent, those sorts of things. Um, we're a good month of painting, at least. 
And then we are probably another month to add runs, make revisions and all of those pieces. We have done it faster. Um, we have done maps in two, you know, a month and a half to two months. Um, but some of them have taken six months, you know, somebody goes on holidays, somebody else goes on holidays. Um, revisions aren't done on time. So it, it really depends. And how much is this going to cost me? Oh, for you, we'd make a deal. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 500 bucks. <laughs> no, not 500 bucks. Um, you know, it really depends. Like in, in 2021, you know, you're probably looking at, I don't know, eight to 12. We've done them for four to six. It really depends on what you're looking for and how organized you are. So somewhere between 4,000 and 20,000 is probably the right answer. But, you know, it, it depends on, on what you're looking for and what you're wanting. That's Canadian or American? Uh, well, it depends on what mountain you are, but let's, <laughs> let's say let's say U.S. I mean, those numbers are pretty fluid. Yeah. Right, right. So I want to talk about the art of this for a minute, Leah. So I think anyone who skied a lot of ski areas, and you certainly sound like you've skied hundreds of them, they all have their own personality, right? It, it doesn't matter how small or rinky-dink or out of the way. It's, it's a distinct place. How important is it to capture that personality in the trail map, that culture, and how hard is it to do that? Very much so. I mean, we all know, you know, what Jackson Hole symbolizes, but, you know, some of these like smaller, we did one for Fairmont Hot Springs in BC. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they have a very distinct um, look and feel they're right in the Rocky Mountains. And, and I mean, they're, they're, it's such a neat spot. And we try and really get that out of our, the customer as to what's important to them. Eric almost always does like a Google street view and goes through the town and drives up to the ski hill and kind of gets a, a tour for, you know, what does their entrance sign look like? What do they look like? Um, we have photos of, like I said, all their lodges and everything. And, and um, we often get them to send us pictures of like what their maze area setups look like and stuff like that, because it really gives us an idea of who they are and, and how the, the, the mountain is utilized, which we like to reflect that true flavor. So sometimes we're painting, you know, mountain coasters in. Sometimes we're really paying, um, you know, we're making sure that we have a historical lodge in the right colors. And um, often there was one map that we did for Mount Mansfield in Ontario, and I guarantee that every tree on that map is in the exact right spot. Right. It was. Wow. It, it was done. It was done wow. with such precision uh, because that was important to them. And I mean, we always try and be accurate with tree placement, but this one was, you know, it was next level and that was important to them. So it was important to us. So, you know, there's a lot of um, what are the unique features and the one for Fairmont, we had to paint the mountain ranges in the background to be correct. So we were painting, you know, and just try and get, uh, you know, a shot of the background mountains that are correct from the right angle, like that was probably the most challenging part of that map itself. So, you know, and then there's always resorts who want their resort to look a little steeper than they did before, <laughs> you know, and some who are like, nope, this is who we are, let's show it. So, you know, there's always a lot of that is is flushed out in the, um, in the consult process. And then, you know, we really try and do our best to you know, to honor that. If we see a body of water, like I want to know, is it a snowmaking reservoir or people skating on it? People are skating on it. Is it hockey or is it, you know, family skate or is it figure skating or no, it's really never used. Okay. Well, we'll address that differently. And how hard is it to get the aspect and the geography, right? Because I, I know sometimes for, 
you take, for example, Sugarbush, Vermont, they have a two mile lift that connects their two mountains, Lincoln Peak and Mount Ellen. Now on the map, that looks like it's about 500 yards because they obviously don't want to make a to scale trail map, right? Because it would just be ridiculous to have two miles in between at the appropriate scale. So, and then sometimes, you know, you might have one face that's on the backside of the mountain, but you don't want to have an inset. So how hard is it to, to figure out how to bend the mountain so that you can see all the trails or, or, or sort of line it up the way they want it, but still make it true to life? Oh, Eric scratches his head on it and, and spends, I'm, I'm pretty sure sometimes there's, you know, a week of sleepless nights in that time frame um, from him scratching his head on how to do it. Um, you know, a lot of it comes from the customer um, and a lot of the smaller resorts don't need as much um, topography alterations, um, which tend to be the resorts that we do. So for us, um, I'm going to use Busquet for an example. They have an area up off the backside that was really important to showcase properly, but from the exact aerial photograph, it wasn't as, as prominent. So, you know, we um, adjusted the slope on the mountain. We widened the, the run that would have been shown. It's not exactly to scale, but it's, it's what it would look like if you were there and it represents the area properly. So, you know, little tweaks. A lot of the time it's asking the customer, you know, it's um, on this map you know, what needs to be altered, because we're looking at, um, you know, an aspect ratio, um, that, and, and we're going from it, and then they can say, well, can this actually be shorter? Can this be taller? Can, you know, we really need to emphasize this area. And, and sometimes that's done through an inset, and, and sometimes it's done through, through altering the topography on the map. I'll be really interested to see what you do with Berkshire's expansion. They were supposed to do it for this season. I think they've pushed it to next season, but that's going to be a whole new pot of trails sort of uh, angled up off the current green slope. So uh, that'll be a really interesting evolution in that map. So, you know, what's really fun is, and, and often people will, will um, adjust their own maps with Photoshop. Unfortunately, if they get too altered, then we can't, um, sometimes they get, you know, beyond a point of no return. So we always suggest that, you know, we do the alterations on the trail map for them. Um, but sometimes they do them, sometimes we do them. And, but a good trail map, you should be able to put in a whole new lift without having to repaint it. Oh, wow. So at that point, you can Photoshop out trees. At that point, if it's done, if, if the work that went into it initially was done properly, then it shouldn't be an issue to alter. So, you know, we had those conversations when we did that map originally as to where the expansion was going to be and, and what it was going to look like. And, and we've spoken with them about, and it's not going to be a, a huge cost to alter and change their map. And, and, you know, we painted the canvas large enough that it should be something that we can do within the existing framework. Nice. All right. Well, I'll be looking forward to that nonetheless, um, mostly because I want to ski the expansion. Um, <laughs> are you working on any maps right now? Um, no, we just finished Bosquet. That one went a little bit later into the year. Everyone's budgets are a little different this year and things things got started later on that one than we normally do. Um, I have a couple of inquiries into the next year, but right now is our prime production time. And so I, I won't uh, I won't take the artist off of uh Eric is busy doing so many other things right now that he won't be free to start trail maps until about March. Okay. Before I let you go, Leah, I, I would like to get your thinking on a couple of current trail map trends, a couple of industry trends. So one of the things we've seen from the larger operators is Vail Resorts last year completely got rid of paper trail maps uh, as a COVID precaution to reduce um, 
a person-to-person contact. This year, they did bring back paper trail maps in limited quantities and by request. So we're, and, and a lot of the other big operators are sort of mimicking this in that they're not necessarily handing them out at trade shows or like putting them out in big stacks, right, anymore. So just curious about your reaction to this gradual reduction in the volume of trail maps that are available on the mountain. So like everything, as technology advances, so do our methods used to get the information advance. Um, if I can, you know, they've got some really neat uh, maps on chairlift bars now that as I'm going up the mountain, I can see, um, you know, I can see it on my cell phone, assuming, you know, my battery's okay in the cold. There's, um, you know, there's more and more technology that still gives us access to the same information. Um, will paper trail maps last forever? Uh, there's always a bit of a need for that. Um, in saying that, I think we'll always have maps. I think the artwork will always live on websites, on apps, on on these, uh, you know, on a physical map in the base area of of a resort. I don't know if the paper trail map. I don't think it's going anywhere today. In ten years from now, will we still have paper trail maps? Maybe not, but I believe it will be substituted with something because. Um, you know, even just how we're communicating grooming and how we're communicating, um, you know, what's happening on the mountain has changed. Um, I'm sure that the, the trail maps will as well, but that's still important safety information. How do I get to the green run? How do I get down? What's the easiest way down the mountain? That is, that's information that's always going to need to be made available. And I, I don't see the map form changing, but the method of distribution. Absolutely. I just, I like the souvenir. If you go into my laundry room, it's covered with trail maps from all the different places I've been. And, and to be honest with you, one of the things I like about it is the variety. And recently, James Newhouse, the trail map artist legend, announced that he's stepping back from designing them. And and look, I like James Newhouse as much as anyone. Amazing talent and and the sheer volume of work he's been able to produce for some of the most important ski resorts in North America is just astounding. However, and I'm going to have some people disagree with me on this. I was happy that he's stepping back because I think that he lives so large that there's almost a sameness to big mountain trail maps over the past couple decades. And I want to get back to this period of experimentation. and, And I hope that some big mountains or little mountains or whatever will take these kind of bold steps and make something a little different, which is why I I think the Berkshire East map was so striking to me when I first saw it. It, It's just so beautiful and it's different. It doesn't look like anything, but it's so detailed and good in that new house-ish way. So I guess my question for you is, is if you have an opinion on James Newhouse, I'd love to hear it. But my, my specific question for you is, is there an opportunity for Intermountain now that Newhouse has stepped back to grow that trail map business? I know you said you only do a couple a year, but could you do six eighty a year if the demand is there and sort of establish yourselves? Because you have a tremendous product. Thank you. Um, I'm a huge uh, fan of Jamie Newhouse as well. Incredible respect. I have his uh, his book on both my personal coffee table and our office coffee table. And uh, it was my gift to, to Eric, our artist, a couple of years ago for Christmas because you know, he's, he's done an incredible amount for the industry. It's not just James Newhouse, though. There's quite a few other large scale artists. Um, Maybe they're not the the big artists, but there's actually quite a few in Europe. And there's some around um, around Canada as well as as Eric. Um, 
And I, I also have heard that he's training a replacement. So how that pans out, we'll see. I would say that as far as our offerings, we'll see how the industry evolves and, and as, as the need evolves, so will, so will our offerings. Same, same as always. Um, I, I think that there will be a lot of, of options. I, I do like consistency because I feel that the trail map plays an important um, safety piece. And I've seen some done by local artists that, that miss the nuances of steepness and bumps and some of those pieces. So I would hope that the industry stays consistent as far as a risk management and, and having people do these that, that know what they're doing, because there can be a big variation in, in producing a proper trail map. But in saying that, you know, with change comes opportunity for us, for others, for mountains, for the industry, for everyone. All right, Leo. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. It is really, really interesting to learn about this stuff and I will not be taking it for granted anymore. I'm going to be searching for your logo at every ski area that I go to. Uh, so please send those over to me. I will look forward to getting out to BC someday and making some turns with you. But thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. That's Leah Mirhead McDonald president and CEO of Intermountain Inc. Thank you very much for that, Leah. What a cool story. What a cool company. And you can tell how much she loves skiing and appreciates she was able to build a life around it. A really, really good example of a family-owned small business making big things happen in a very dispersed and very challenging industry. Thank you all for listening to this podcast and all of the rest of the podcasts I put out this year. This is the 37th and final Storm Skiing Podcast of 2021. I've already got some really fun stuff lined up for 2022, including conversations with the folks who run Hickory, New York, Beaver Mountain, Utah, Timberline, Oregon, Boyne Highlands, Michigan, Tamarack, Idaho, and Little Switzerland, The Rock, and Nordic Mountain, Wisconsin. Lots more working, including some headliners that I'm not ready to announce just yet. While you wait for those, please remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com and follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.